he is indeed worthy to be praised. He's the great God of heaven and earth, and uh, we can rejoice uh, in his grace to us here today. Uh, The text we're going to be considering this morning uh, reminds us of God's good grace to a sinful man. And I know that as we hear this text, uh, we will all imagine ourselves in Jacob's place. A sinful man or woman, subject to the grace of God and his goodness. This time I'd like to dismiss children to Children's Church. So children ages K-4 through 3rd grade, uh, they can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. Uh, parents, uh, they are dismissed to the Welcome Center area where a children's ministry worker will walk with them over to the children's ministry building. Uh, each child needs to have a name tag. So if you haven't done that yet, parents, you can go back to the Welcome Center now and they'll help you get that name tag and uh, point you in the right direction. You could even accompany your child there if you'd like to see where they're at and then come on back and join us uh, afterwards after everything's settled down there. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 28 this morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 28. Today we're going to come to the final episodes in the early scenes of Jacob's life. Final episodes. The final episode in the early scene of Jacob's life. And we're going to come to a fascinating narrative uh, called Jacob's Ladder. I want you to look with me as we begin at verses 12 and 13. I want to whet your appetite a bit uh, before we formally dig in. Look at verses 12 and 13. Genesis 28, verses 12 and 13. It says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold... The Lord stood above it and said. If I could get your attention back here for a moment. What, what a mysterious text, right? Makes you just want to keep reading. What's God going to say? What is this ladder? What's this dream? What, are, you know, what is uh, the fact that angels are ascending and descending on it? What, what's all this supposed to mean? This text has drawn the attention of many th- Christian theologians throughout the years. Uh, as I was trying to make sense of it myself this week, uh, I started going through church history and looking at the way different theologians have worked on this text regarding the dream in Jacob's Ladder. I went from Augustine to Irenaeus to Origen to Chrysostom to Martin Luther to John Calvin. There have been all kinds of different ways that people have understood this dream about a ladder that reaches from heaven to earth. Uh, There are also uh, different ways that Jewish and even Islamic interpreters take this text. Give you a few examples, two examples of Jewish interpretations of this text. These ones are predominant, although according to my count this week, there are at least 13 different Jewish interpretations of this passage. Some rabbis suggest that the latter points forward to something bigger, allegorically. It points forward to the temple, establishment of the temple of God with the fragrances of the altar sacrifices reaching up to heaven. The angels, according to these rabbis, represent the high priest of Israel who go back and forth between God and man. That's one Jewish interpretation. Others, however, suggest it's not pointing forward to the temple, it's pointing forward to Mount Sinai, the place where God communicates with the Israelite people the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses. 
through angelic mediators. Of course, the uh, book of Galatians tells us that the law was given to Moses through angels. The angels are, in this text of Jacob's text, according to this Jewish interpretation then, are real angels who convey the law of Moses to the people. But as you start interacting with these views, is that what God intends in this passage? Um, how are we supposed to understand this ancient dream about a ladder ascending the whole way to heaven and angels coming and going uh, on that ladder? Perhaps you're skeptical of the Jewish interpretations I've given you already. So you may, you know, maybe it's just a dream and we shouldn't read too much into it. But the question is, is that really how we're supposed to understand it too? Just a dream that doesn't really have much significance? And so uh, today... Uh, I want to encourage you to pay close attention. And as we work through this text, I believe that we'll be able to explore the true meaning of this dream and consider its relevance to our lives today. Because I think this ancient dream about a ladder and angels coming and going uh, has relevance uh, for us today. This story has three parts. I'm going to walk you through it, and then I'll, I'll make comments about its relevance for us as well. Uh, the story starts with a very brief note about, and I've got three points kind of working through the narrative. Number one, Jacob's situation. Okay, that occurs in verse 10. Just one verse, this is Jacob's situation. Uh, after, uh, uh, well, look down at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Beersheba, of course, was the home base of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob's parents, but he can't stay there. Remember last week, he can't stay there because he ripped off his twin brother Esau, and now Esau wants to kill him. And so he leaves Beersheba, he's making his way on down to a place called Haran, which is where Abraham was originally from, his grandfather. Now he goes there not only to flee from his brother, but if you remember last week, he goes there also to find a wife from his extended family. That's what his father Isaac had encouraged him to do. So this story, the situation is this. Uh, Jacob is on a journey between Beersheba and Haran. It is a lonely and fearful journey. Jacob is all by himself, I believe, in an unfamiliar place, a place that he will later call in this narrative, he will give the name Bethel which means house of God. Beth means house, El God, house of God. He's going to call it the house of God. So he's in Bethel at this point. That leads to the second part of the story, Jacob's dream in verses 11 through 15. I want you to look with me at those, that dream and what it looks like here. Verse 11. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place... Uh, he, put it, um, uh, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. The events of verses 11 through 15 take place during an evening. Jacob spends the night out under the stars. You know, uh, without, it seems, it seems at least from reading the narrative that he doesn't have like the conveniences even of a house or a tent at this point. He's out under the stars, perhaps all alone. We don't know why he's not able to stay with someone else along the way or whatever, uh, but that's the way the story unfolds. And uh, we learn that he puts a stone under or at his head. You saw that in the text there, right? Now, uh, it may be that he puts the stone near his head in order to protect his head. Uh, it's like he's fearful of something, and so he puts his head by a big protecting stone or something. I don't know how a stone would protect your head, but that's what some people think. Uh, however, uh, it could also be that he puts the stone under his head. So the preposition could be near his head or under his head. And, and that's how the King James took it, right? When they supply the words, as a pillow. As a pillow. Um, the words, as a pillow, don't reflect the Hebrew original. It's not there in the original, but it is a matter of interpretation. I, I think I agree with that old translation there. So he puts it under his head as a pillow. Okay, so... As uh, he does this with this rather uncomfortable headrest, I can't imagine a, a stone for a pillow. Perhaps it's better than just the ground, I suppose. Uh, but, uh, but as he does this, he begins to dream. And in the dream, we're introduced to three very important figures that Moses actually emphasizes in the text. You can see this in your own Bible, and I, I'd encourage you to perhaps even consider marking this in your Bible in verses 12 and 13. In verse 12 it says, and he dreamed, and then you have this marker, and behold, angels. That's the first thing he wants to be, emphasize. He says, and behold, angels. Then in the middle of the verse, he says, and behold, or I'm sorry, and behold, uh, the first one is a ladder. Okay. In the middle of verse 12, he says, and behold, angels. We're ascending and descending on it. And then in verse 13, how does that start? And behold, the Lord. Okay, so Moses is emphasizing those three things. A ladder, angels, and Yahweh, or the Lord. So I want to look at each one of those a little bit closer uh, with you here. First, Jacob sees a ladder that touches earth and heaven. <clears throat> The translation ladder of the Hebrew here is entirely possible. Although some translations might take it. You might be reading a different translation. It might say stairway. Okay, unfortunately, this is the only time this Hebrew word is used in the entire Bible. So we don't have like other texts to compare it with. Uh, let me just say, it could either be a ladder or a stairway. Some sort or means of uh, transportation offers ways for angels to come and go from heaven to earth. I would say probably let's stick with ladder because I like it better. Uh, what is significant about the ladder, however, is that it not only touches the earth, <clears throat> it also rises the whole way up to heaven. Now think about this in your knowledge of Genesis so far. Do you remember a time in Genesis when humanity wanted to reach up into the heavens? Yes, I agree with the mumbling I heard there. 
the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, as a mark of arrogance or pride, the people wanted to build a tower that would reach the whole way up to where God was in heaven. They weren't able to do that, however. God saw it was a mark of pride, and he scattered them. However, in this text, as a mark of grace in this dream, God provides a ladder that reaches the whole way up into the heavens for Jacob in this dream. But then, behold, he sees something else important. In the middle of verse 12, you know he sees a ladder? He sees ascending and descending angels. Along the ladder were angels who were coming and going between earth and heaven. That's the dream. No doubt these angels were messengers of God. That's what the word angels means, messengers. They were messengers of God sent to minister to those below on the earth. And so the ladder then seems to be some sort of like portal or bridge that connects heaven and earth and allows God's angelic beings to minister to those people who are on the earth, maybe especially someone like Jacob, who's all by himself, fleeing for his life on this dark night. And so in some, the way I would, you know, if, if you're asking me in particular, in Genesis, what is the meaning of the ladder? This is how I'd summarize it. Jacob's dream about a ladder communicates how God was blessing him from above with angels ministering to him on behalf of God. Because as I'm trying to make sense, you know, Augustine, he had a chance. All those other guys, you know, I come humbly beneath all of them, and they all contribute in some way to our current views. I, I think the latter in Genesis is God's way of communicating to Jacob his blessings on him and how angels are ministering to him on behalf of God. On this difficult night. But the scriptures actually do more with the concept uh, in the new covenant. And I'd encourage you to hold your finger here. And I want to show you a New Testament text that I think is relevant. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, New Testament. Hold your finger here. So I said, I think this is what the latter means in Genesis. It's a way of God revealing to him that angels are ministering to people like Jacob on behalf of God. But as we come to the New Covenant, it's interesting that Jesus picks up this language. Jesus himself picks up this language. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 51. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Or compared it with Genesis 28. John 1, 51, he said to him, as Jesus to Nathanael, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And you're using the same language, uh, the mention of heaven, and the exact same language, and the angels of God ascending and descending on. That comes from Genesis chapter 28. In this passage, of course, if you're looking around in the context to make sense of what's going on, Jesus calls Nathaniel to be one of his disciples. And he impresses him with some supernatural knowledge about Nathaniel being previously located under a fig tree. Remember, this? there's no way Jesus should have known where Nathaniel was at that point. 
he shouldn't have been able to figure it out, but Jesus said, I saw you before when you're under the fig tree. And Nathaniel responds in verse 49 by being overwhelmed with Jesus. Rabbi, he says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. To this, Jesus proclaims to Nathaniel and to the other disciples, you will see even greater things than that little piece of supernatural knowledge. He says, you will see angels from God ascending and descending on something. Jesus says, you will see of sorts a supernatural bridge connecting heaven and earth. That bridge, that connector, that ladder is Jesus himself. That's why I take John 151. Jacob's ladder, in Genesis 28, they're ascending and descending on the ladder. Here, they're ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What an amazing thing Jesus claims to Nathaniel and these first four disciples here in this text. Jacob's ladder is replaced with Jesus as the ladder between God and man. And so... I would say it this way regarding the latter in John's gospel. During Jesus' ministry on earth, he is the new ladder, the new way that connects, uh, the, the way God connects with and ministers to people. You see what Jesus is saying in the gospel of John? It's a bit mysterious, but it's important. One commentator said it this way He says, Jesus is the new Bethel, the place where God is revealed, where heaven and earth, God and humanity meet. He says with Jesus how he understands the latter in Genesis. Angels are ascending and descending on that ladder, and now they're ascending and descending on the, the other way, the means by which God has revealed himself to mankind and ministers to people, Jesus. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 28. As you do, let me just say, perhaps the idea of a supernatural portal between heaven and earth is exhilarating to you. You read about something like this, you're like, Man, I, I, that's really cool. I, I hope I can go see it sometime. You know, go try to figure out where it is. I'm going to go to Bethel and figure out if this dream is like has any legitimacy to it or not. Perhaps you're driven by the novelty or thrill of such a tradition, but would you understand that there's something far more important for you to see in the New Testament, and that is that Jesus is the way, the bridge. He is the place where heaven reaches down to earth. In John 14, Jesus said this about himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Simon Peter in Acts chapter 4 was preaching about Jesus, and he said this. He says, neither is salvation found in any other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And so if you're here today and you don't know much of what I'm talking about with Jacob's Ladder and you're intrigued, you're trying to see, is there, was there a way that God communicated himself to man? May I just say, you need to believe on the name of Jesus Christ as God's way and deliverance from your sin. As we go back to Genesis chapter 28, Jacob sees more than a ladder. And he sees more than an ascending and descending angel. Behold... In verses 13 through 15, he sees someone else. Finally, he sees God in these verses speaking to him 
from the top of the ladder. That's the dream. And so God, after identifying himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, reveals the nature of what is important to him, what he wants to communicate to him uh, by saying he will do several things for him. And I would summarize these things seven ways and just go very quickly through them in verses 13 through 15. So as I'm reading them, you can just see them here. First, God says he will give uh, Jacob the land that he's sleeping on in verse 13. And then second, he says that he will bless uh, Jacob's offspring. He had promised to bless Abraham's offspring and Isaac's offspring before. And now he says he's going to break bless Jacob's offspring too. And in saying this, he uses very vivid language. He says Jacob's offspring will be like dust that spreads out. And the word spreads out can be translated explodes or bursts out forth, something like that, bursts forth in every direction. East, west, west, north, south. That is, Jacob's descendants will populate and fill the whole earth. Now, if you remember where he is, he's alone, all by himself. He's not even married yet in search of a wife. I'm sure this would be very encouraging to him, this dream. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and they're going to spread out in every direction. But then third, God promises that he will bless all the families of the earth through Jacob's descendants. We've heard the same language in Genesis chapter 12 to describe Abraham. He's going to bless all the families or all the peoples of the earth through the descendants of Jacob and Abraham. I think this is what uh, one commentator called here the messianic part of the promises to Abraham and Jacob. The way that he's going to do this is there's going to come an anointed person from Abraham's line and from Jacob's line that will one day come to bless all the families of the earth through him. And who is that one anointed person who will one day come? You can say his name out loud. Jesus. Right? This is a messianic part. God promises he'll bless all the families of the earth through his descendants. Then fourth, in verse 15, God says that he will be with Jacob. He says there right at the beginning of the verse, Behold, I am with you. That's interesting to me. This promise is given to Jacob, and he's the very first person in the Bible that gets this promise. I am with you, Jacob. Many of God's children will hear promises just like this one later. People like Moses and Joshua and Gideon and the disciples. But Jacob is the first. And what's interesting to me is, you know, what an undeserving candidate Jacob is. I mean, think about this. God is suggesting with this promise, I am with you, that he will reverse the curse from the garden. Remember before sin, Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in the garden. That is, they enjoyed fellowship with God. God was with them. But to Jacob, God says, he'll reverse this. He reverses this and he is with him. I am with you. This is the same guy who was smashing his brother while he was in the womb. This is the guy who took advantage of his brother when he was near death. This is the same guy, right, who took advantage of his elderly handicapped father. This is the guy that ripped his twin brother out of a birthright and a blessing. And yet God promises, through sheer grace, to this lying, hill-grabbing scoundrel, I will be with you, or I am with you. 
God will not only be with him, fifth, God will keep or guard him wherever he goes. These are significant promises, men and women. We just kind of read through this. This is, just, this is God saying, I will, I will, I will. I will guard you wherever you go. And six, and I will bring you back to this land. Although Jacob will go farther and farther away from the land, God promises here that he will sustain Jacob as he goes and will bring him back to the special land of promise. And then finally, in the middle of verse 15, the seventh promise, God says that he will not leave Jacob until he fulfills all of his promises to him. See that in the middle of verse 15? He will not leave him until he fulfills every single one of his promises to him and his descendants. This is a final reinforcement for Jacob. What grace this is to Jacob. While he is fleeing for his life, alone, without much, many resources, perhaps even a pillow, trying to find a wife in a foreign country, God comes and meets with him in a dream. God gives him a reassuring, a reassuring dream, making promises to him. Just stop for a moment of application for us today. Perhaps you're here today and you are at a low point, a point of pain or threat. And you don't feel deserving at all. You feel like the scoundrel we're talking about here, like a sinner. Well, the supernatural God of heaven will stand with you if you identify with his son, Jesus Christ. That is, God will cast his lot with you and be with you as well. If you are a follower of Jesus, God has said to you through his own son, and behold, he says in Matthew 28, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And again, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews takes an old promise to Joshua, where God said to Joshua, I will never leave you or forsake you, and he applies it to followers of Jesus Christ. Where God says to us, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. We share some of these blessed promises with Jacob. And so what a powerfully reassuring dream he receives, right? Angels, a ladder, and God. Makes you wonder how Jacob would respond. Okay, and that's all we have left. My third point, the response of Jacob, verses 16 through 22. It all starts in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke. What's going to happen? What's he going to do with this dream that he gets? And what follows that is a threefold response. Look with me at his initial response. I would call it his declaration, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, he made a declaration or two here. Surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Jacob's first response once he regains consciousness is to declare that he was ignorant of the importance of this very special place where he was, Bethel. 
word place here is used twice by Jacob. It's used actually four other times in this narrative, six times in the whole. Jacob is so impressed with the dream that he declares that this is a special place. This special place he calls God's house, Bethel, a gateway to heaven. Now, to be honest with you, as I study this part of the text and Jacob's response, I don't know exactly what to do with Jacob's obsession with the place. Okay, but it leads him in his second response to mark out a tribute or a marker, to put a marker where this place is as a memorial to God. The second response is a tribute. Look at verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head And he set it up as a pillar or a marker and poured oil on the top of it. He named, he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Here Jacob does something ancient. He sets up a stone that he put under his head as a pillar or marker. It seems to be an uncut stone in a place upright for memorial purposes to remind himself of this location and to mark it out. And then he puts out special, pours out special oil all over it. Now, some commentators in this part of the section, they get a little frustrated with Jacob. They get really frustrated with him. They say that he's picking up ancient Canaanite practices of idolatry. But I think that's an overreaction. I don't think he's doing that. I don't see him worshiping the stone. He's not worshiping the stone. He's not worshiping the ground. Instead, he's setting up simply a memorial or marker to mark out this place where God gave him this dream. And that leads him to respond in one last way in verses 20 through 22 with a vow to God. Look at verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then (laughs) the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Oh, good. We get to talk about tithing, right? (laughs) Jacob's final response is a vow. Several things stick out to me about this vow. First, Jacob is the only patriarch to make a vow to God. Vows in Scripture normally were made in moments of crisis. When someone was in severe trouble. And the way they normally go is, God, if you will deliver me, if you will help me, if you will do such and such and such and such, then I will do something. Vows normally bound the worshiper to certain actions if God would deliver him or her. Having said that, one of the things I believe about vows as I go from Old Testament to New Testament is that it is not normative for a New Testament believer to take vows. Sure, he does here, but as you're going through the New Testament, you have Paul on a few, just a few occasions taking vows as he's serving different people, but there's new te- no place in the New Testament epistles that calls a believer to va- make vows to God. So I just think it's not normative. It's not normal for, normal for New Testament believers, and it wasn't normal for the patriarchs either. Jacob's the only one who did this. The second thing I would say about the vow here is this is the longest recorded vow in Scripture. You say that doesn't seem lengthy, but I would say that's significant. Jacob here commits himself to do three things. Yahweh will be his God. This stone will be a future site of worship. 
and he'll give him a tithe of all that God gives to him. With these vows, he indicates the seriousness of his commitment to God. Last one, of course, it says he gives a tenth back to God for all that God gives to him. I think at this lowly point, Jacob has nothing or very little, and, and if he gets anything in this world, he rightly knows it'll be a gift from God, and that God deserves his gracious giving back to him in worship. But finally, I would say that we can also see that Jacob's vow is conditional. Did you notice that? The if-then part of this? I was reading through this this week, and I had the privilege of studying it all week, and, it, and to be honest with you, it kind of drove me nuts. It's conditional promise. Okay, and so the way this works, you understand what he's doing, is he takes three of the promises that God had given him in verse 15. He repeats them and says, if indeed God will do that, then Jacob will respond a certain way. I want you to see this. Look in verse 15. In verse 15, it says, behold, I am with you. It's one of the promises that he given to him. And then go to Jacob's vow. If God will be with me. Like he just said he will be with you. And you say if he will be with me. All right, I'm trying to be patient with Jacob. The second promise in verse 15. And uh, behold, I am with you and will keep you. Look at Jacob's. Vow, verse 20, if God will be with me and will keep me. The third one that Jacob gives, you just keep reading, keep me in this way that I go, verse 20, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house. Back to verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. Although Jacob is determining the parameters of the vow here that he makes to God, he conditions it on promises that God just made to him in the dream that he received. If you are with me, if you will guard me, if you will bring me back. Having pointed that out, I would just say, I think it's still incredible to me that Jacob would impose conditions on God. Jacob sets up a test of sorts for the creator God. If you will do what you say you will do, then I will do such and such and such. I I think this is a ridiculous response, personally. Now, if you disagree, you can come up to me and we can hammer it out after, you know, between the break. Jacob says to the creator of the universe, if you will do this for me, and if you will give me bread to eat and clothes to wear, as if that's going to be a problem for God. This is the creator. If you'll give me bread and clothes, then I will. How unworthy, how cringeworthy, how wrong. Yet God is gracious to him and doesn't wipe him out, is willing to work with him and encourage him in his most vulnerable moment. Men and women, as we work through this text, I believe it's Moses' intent. He wants his readers to see the gracious nature of God's promises to sinful men and women. 
we must fundamentally understand something. The good promises and blessings from God come on account of His grace alone. Not upon human merit in Jacob or any other person. And for us men and women, as believers in Jesus Christ in the new covenant, He has made a way, a ladder, for Him to be with us too. His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's respond to his gift of his Son by offering up to him unconditional, unconditional, heartfelt service. Saying to God, since you have done this for me in Jesus, I will, I will have you as my God. I will serve you this week. I will point other people to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank him for his grace to us in Christ. Father, you are the almighty creator of the universe and we are puny men and women. The author Isaiah says that you sit over the circle of the earth and we are like little grasshoppers. Lord, it's not for us to put conditions on you. It's not for us to do that. But it's for us to rejoice in your gracious provision for us. We were sinful men and women. Damned and dead in our trespasses and sins, but you made a way for us to be with you again. You reversed the curse of the garden powerfully through sending your son who died in your place and rose again so that we might be able to be with you. Lord, as we come through this text, may we resonate the nature of Jacob's sin, but may we respond back to you by offering up to you unconditional service. Come what may, Lord, may this time we offer up to you with gracious hearts because of forgiven sins, service that would be appropriate in light of your grace to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.